0: Welcome, and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most gruesome, the most mind-boggling, the most bizarre homicide cases occurring in Maryland are discussed, they are examined, and they are profiled. For this season, season seven, the focus is on murder cases where the murderer they played um not guilty by reason of insanity or they were not mentally they were found not mentally competent to stand trial because of a history of well documented mental illness. And when I say mental illness, I don't mean that the killer or murderer they just had some form of pent up rage and they just got mad and zapped out one day. Nope. For the most part these killers were gone. I'm talking like they were severely sick, they had histories of well-documented mental illnesses, and most had repeated stays in at least one mental institution, but they were somehow allowed to live in society when they showed clear signs that they should have probably been committed a long time ago. Now, mostly all of the murderers in this season have been sentenced indefinitely to Clifton T. Perkins, the only real mental institution that we have for the criminally insane in Maryland. Meaning there's no real chance of them ever being released back into society because their murders were so bizarre, so brutal, so out there, so pointless. And speaking of Perkins, The notorious homicides that I'm going to profile for this week's episode are the three consecutive homicides that occurred at Clifton T. Perkins during 2010 and 2011 that were 15 months apart. And just like in all of the other episodes that are in this podcast, a portion will be dedicated to an unsolved homicide that needs special attention because basically not much, if anything, is going on with the case. Last season, because I profiled uh, 10 homicides where the victims were women, it's only right, it's it's only fair that I show the same amount of attention to the men. So for this season, season 7, all of the unsolved homicides that will be profiled, the victims were male. And this week's unsolved homicide is the shooting murder of 14-year-old Sterling Emmanuel Settle. Clifton T. Perkins Hospital is Merlin's only real maximum security forensic psychiatric hospital in a state. Clifton uh, T. Perkins is named after a psychiatrist who was determined to change the way that mentally ill patients are treated at public state hospitals. He was responsible for the desegregation of um, mentally ill patients at hospitals as well, according to Wikipedia. Now, Perkins is located on 45 acres in Jessup, Maryland, in Howard County. It's close to the detention center in Jessup and also close to uh, Patuxent, which is another detention center in Maryland where mentally ill inmates can receive mental health treatment for a number of mental health issues. With 350 beds, almost everybody at Perkins is here because they killed somebody and was found not competent to stand trial or not criminally responsible because of documented mental illness. At Perkins, people here are not called inmates, they are called patients, regardless of their crimes, no matter how brutal they was. Sometimes you are held at Perkins to receive a mental health evaluation to see if you are competent or sane enough to stand trial, or if you are pleading guilty by reason of insanity. You're held at Perkins basically for an evaluation. Here at Perkins, They don't assign you numbers like they do when you get locked up, or when you're detained in a detention center or prison. Here, people are addressed by their names with respect. They are called patients. They are medicated. They receive treatment versus punishment for their crimes or homicides, I should say. Um, The dorms are pretty much co ed for the most part. From what I hear, the food is better. Um, both male and female patients can mingle with each other at any given time. But one of the differences from being at uh, Perkins is that in prison, you have a release date. If you don't have a life sentence at Perkins, you are basically, you are there until a doctor says your ass ain't a threat or until a doctor says that you can function outside you know of society for the most part the routine is like prison and for the most part Clifton T Perkins is, is safer than prison um, it's not you know gangs or people feuding back and forth that is there for treatment but in 2010 and 2011 Clifton T Perkins became a crime scene three times almost back to back. Three patients were murdered by patients who were under the direct supervision of state personnel, all within a 15-month period. The first patient to be killed was 45-year-old Susan Lynn Sachs. Susan had been in Clifton for uh, 6 years because when she was 39, she stabbed and killed her landlady while she slept in her bed because she thought that, um, basically, she thought that her landlady was about to evict her from her house. 71-year-old Joyce Haddle had been reported missing from her home in Chevy Chase, and she had, she had been known to basically take in people who had nowhere to go, no place to stay. Susan who had a history of mental illness and was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia with narciss- narcissistic traits which I never even heard of before she had been off her prescribed medication when she brutally stabbed her landlady Susan got sentenced indefinitely to Perkins medium security ward and while she was there she became friends with 51 year old now I'm going to try my best with this name 51 year old L Sudani L Wahabi, who was also known as Saladin Taylor. I'm going to call him Saladin or L. L well, had been at Perkins for 15 years after he raped and killed a 26 year old woman and for raping his sister in law. L had been found not criminally responsible for these crimes, and while he was being treated at Perkins, He also managed to make a few friendships. One of the women that he befriended was Susan, and together they talked about their issues and their troubles that they had at Perkins. You know, they weren't happy. They felt like they were being mistreated, you know, blah, blah, blah. On the evening of July 25th, 2010, Elle decided to go into Susan's room and strangle her to death with a shoestring. Susan wasn't found until the next morning around 8.30 a.m. when the staff noticed that she never came down for breakfast. A nurse went to check on her and found Susan lying in her bed, face down. When the staff looked at the tapes from the security footage, the police were called, and when they discovered that L had been the last person to go into Susan's room, they questioned him about what happened. L admitted to the detectives what he had done, telling the detectives that Susan's murder was supposed to be some sort of suicide pact where he was going to hang himself with the same shoestring that he used to kill Susan with, but apparently L had chickened out and he couldn't go through with taking his own life. He just didn't have the courage no more. L calmly told the detectives that before he strangled Susan, he kissed her. He stepped on her back and her arm with so much force that he left his shoe print embedded in her skin and that Susan struggled and fought so hard for her life that she had somehow gotten out of her pink sweatpants. After Susan stopped moving and struggling, Elle put a blanket over her body to make it seem like she was just sleeping and he left. L. told the detectives that both he and Susan were transgender and that he had been suffering from being trapped in this transgender lifestyle. According to articles for the Baltimore Sun, L. told the detectives that he and Susan had made a suicide pact because they didn't want to be on this earth anymore because they felt that other people at the hospital they were out to get them. L. said he was sorry for killing Susan but everything was cool now because they would all be together again in the next life. Mental illness at its finest, I'm telling y'all, I mean, sheesh. When Elle was busy strangling Susan, the surveillance camera that was in the hospital caught one employee sitting on a couch where you couldn't even see where the patient's rooms were. Security breach. Another employee was watching TV and another employee was caught sleeping on the clock. After the homicide detectives review all of the evidence, they question witnesses, mental illnesses or not, prosecutors decide to charge L with first-degree murder and on August the 16, 2004, he was arrested and put in a real detention center. During L's first trial in 2012, the jury deliberated for 11 hours but they could not come to any unanimous unanimous decision, so a mistrial was declared. But in July of twenty thirteen, after a trial that lasted for two days, L was convicted of first degree murder by a Howard County jury and he was sentenced to life without the possibility for parole. One homicide at you know, at a psychiatric state ran hospital was enough. I mean, just one. But 15 months after Susan was killed in her room, Clifton T. Perkins was rocked with another homicide. 24-year-old Vitaly Davidov and 22-year-old David Rico Noyola were roommates at Perkins. David had been at the hospital since 2008 for killing his 48-year-old mother, Ophelia Noyola Monroe at their apartment in the 200 block of Woodhill Drive in Glen Burnie, in December of 2008, when he was just 20 years old. David had been found not competent to stand trial for murdering his mother, and he was sentenced to treatment at Perkins. Vitali, who was from an affluent neighborhood of North Potomac, and suffered from schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, had been at Perkins since 2006, For beating his psychiatrist to death in 2006. According to articles for the Washington Post, when Vitaly was 19 years old, he had been showing issues with his mental illness, you know, basically just acting out. He had been showing issues with his mental health. Um, His family was concerned, and his father had taken him to see his psychiatrist who was 53-year-old Dr. Wayne Stewart Fenton, who was also the Associate Director of the National Institute of Mental Health. wasn't just no regular shrink. Now, Dr. Fenton had been treating Vitaly Vitali for six months at his office on Old Georgetown Road in Bethesda, when one day in 2006, Vitaly snapped and beat the psychiatrist to death with his fist because he said the doctor had been trying to get him to take his prescribed medication and he didn't want to take his prescribed medication. Plus, in Vitali's mind, he later confessed to detectives that he was delusional and he thought that the, sh- the doctor was basically asking to be killed anyway. Weird. Vitali suffered from delusions, thoughts, and fears about being raped or sexually assaulted. And when Vitali's father came to pick him up from his appointment with his psychiatrist and saw that his son had blood on his hands, his shirt and pants, his father he got concerned and he saw the psychiatrist laying on the floor of his office like in a back room. His father wasted no time. He called the police, he called the cops himself, and he reported what his son had done. In two thousand seven, Vitali was found guilty of killing his doctor, but because of his mental illness, Vitali was found not criminally responsible. So, for treatment, Vitaly was placed at per- Clifton T. Perkins and put in a maximum security unit where David was also housed at. On the afternoon of October twenty-first, two 2011, Vitali did the same thing he did to his psychiatrist. He beat David to death in the room that they shared. And after beating David, Vitaly calmly came out of his room at about 2.30 p.m. and asked the nurse for help because he had just beat his roommate to death because now he said that David had been trying to rape him. He said David now had been trying to sexually assault him. When the nurse went into their room, she found David lying on the floor bleeding with wounds to his his head, his body, and David was dead at the scene. A nurse said that she had just checked on both of them just like less, not even 30 minutes earlier and had seen nothing unusual, like nothing out of the ordinary, nothing weird going on, charged with first and second degree murder, this time Vitaly was found mentally competent to stand trial for beating David to death. But after further tests and other mental health evaluations on November the 13th, 2012, Vitaly was again found incompetent to stand trial for killing David and was committed again to where else? Clifton T. Perkins. I mean, where else was he going to go? as if two murders at the hospital wasn't enough to raise eyebrows. I mean this is a state- ran hospital, a state psychiatric hospital. Two murders already raised eyebrows. but just six days after Vitali was um, killed David, another homicide at Clifton, Perkins, Clifton T Perkins rocked the whole institution. 40 year old Regilio Mandragon and 46-year-old Andre Mayo, they were not roommates, but they were housed on the same wing that was supposed to be a maximum security unit. This particular wing had all males on it, and like I said, it was supposed to be some safe and secure wing. Andre, who had been at Perkins since 2008 because he punched a total stranger in the face at a bus stop, Because the dude wouldn't give him a dollar after he begged him for it, some type of he was he was that type. In 2010, Andre was also charged with raping an 11-year-old girl in Silver Spring. He had been found incompetent to stand trial for both of these charges, and he had been sent to Perkins for treatment. Regilio had been at Perkins for only about a year because he had also been found incompetent to stand trial after he had been arrested and charged with two other dudes for raping an 11-year-old girl in Montgomery County. I guess because of the nature of both of their charges, they were put on the same wing or whatever, but none of the doors are locked at Perkins, or they were not locked on um, Perkins on this day, and on the evening of Thursday, October twenty seventh, two 2011, the staff at Clifton T. Perkins found Regilio dead lying on his back around 640 p.m on the floor of his room Regilio had scars and marks on his hands knuckles his head face and a severe deadly injury to his neck which proved to be fatal at first Andre seemed to be all concerned you know he was acting like he didn't know what was going on like uh, He was just as shocked as everybody else was. He acted like he was concerned about what had happened to Regilio. But when the detectives looked at the security footage that was centered towards Regilio's room, they could clearly see that Andre was the last person to go into Regilio's room, twice within the last half hour before he was killed. Arrested and charged with first-degree and second-degree murder again, on April 12, 2012, Andre was found competent to stand trial for killing Regilio, but after further tests and mental, more mental health evaluations again, Andre was later found not competent to stand trial. A year after Regilio was killed, his family did file a $20 million civil lawsuit against Andre, but not necessarily the hospital. Because in the lawsuit, it did say that proper risk and detention unit classifications and an ongoing monitoring of patients at the hospital was reportedly inadequate. And that there was an adequate patient and staff security. And that Andre had an extensive history of criminal conduct, including a history of violent conduct towards others. And that he was a person with dangerous tendencies. Either way, because of all of the murders, three employees retired and the chief executive of Perkins stepped down a month after Virgilio was killed. Clifton T. Perkins did some cosmetic work like hiring more employees, installing more lights and locks and stuff like that. Now the reason why this was so notorious in the state of Maryland, I mean come on, come on now, this was like a state ran hospital. you're not supposed to have no murders, no homicides in a state-run mental institution. Come on now, and especially by patients. That was kind of a little out of the ordinary. Um, one of the first places that I ever worked at was uh, my very first job. Was my very first summer job, I believe, was at a place called... It was a mental health facility called Rosewood, back out in Orange Mills. It was not for the criminally insane. But um, I do know what it's like to work with people that are mentally challenged, at least the people that I worked with were slightly mentally challenged. They were not murderers or killers or anything like that. But I say that to say that, wow, if, if you know, and that was a medium security, I wasn't even really, it was like a hospital or whatever. But for a homicide to have occurred at a place like that would have been out of the ordinary so imagine you know three homicides occurring with less than 18 months of each other at the only maximum security uh facility that we have for the crillian insane. that's why this made the list as one of the most notorious homicides that occurred in maryland with a mental health aspect theme to it and it's like it also raises the question of like what do you do to with a person who's suffering from a mental illness and they've already killed one person and they've already been detained and they kill somebody else do you place them in the same institution? do you change their medication? do you put them in prison? Do you charge them regularly as you would a person who was not suffering from a uh mental health crisis it's just a lot of questions surrounding that that i guess nobody has any real answers to because there are people that are in Perkins that have been charged with double homicides and where else are you going to put them at like what else are you going to do i mean you can't put them in prison um also what determines competency like what tests are they administering to these patients quote unquote to determine whether or not they are insane or competent to stand trial because some of these homicides that it seemed like to me they kind of knew what they were doing they may not have done you know they may not have had a clear motive like a normal murderer would but in um you know their their motive just to see i mean what regardless if the motive does seem a little out there a little bizarre there's still a motive so to me that still says competency i don't understand you know there's a fine line between whether a person is insane competent to stand trial whether they knew what they was doing was wrong, right, or whatever. I don't know. I'm just glad I'm not in that position to make that decision about who's basically crazy and who's not. Um, the question is also raised that if a person is suffering from mental illness, and I think I may have raised this question before in other episodes. If the person who has been diagnosed with mental illness and they stop taking their medication on their own and they commit a crime, should they be held responsibly legally or civilly for the crime that they commit you know could they still uh use that defense of not guilty or not you know i'm pleading not competent to stand trial when you did not you were competent enough not to know to know not to take your medication you follow what i'm saying so it raises a lot of questions about whether or not Um, a person that's suffering from a mental illness should be allowed to even use that as a defense. We could talk about this topic all night, I'm telling you. And now it's time to move on to this week's Unsolved Homicide. And like I say in every single episode since I have launched this podcast, although a lot of attention and focus is given to homicides in Maryland, that were noteworthy, They got a lot of attention, They was on Murder, Inc. It may have gotten a lot of, you know, fair press, um, attention and all of this. This podcast also shines a light on the many homicides that we see in this state that do not receive a lot of attention or press, if any attention at all. These killings are so common in this little state of Maryland that they don't really always make the news they don't always make murder ink. It's not always on Fox 45 or nothing like that. Sometimes when a person gets killed in this state, you don't hear jack about it. You don't hear nothing else about it. It was here one minute and the victim was here one minute and he was gone the next. And the number of homicides that are unsolved in this state is completely staggering, completely staggering. Almost half, almost half of all the homicides that occur in this state go unsolved I mean homicide detectives obviously they cannot do it all by themselves especially when they are outnumbered and especially when they're kept busy all the time I mean it's unrealistic to think that which I'll see on TV that homicide you know cases are solved like that they don't have time to run DNA on every single case they don't have time to go from door to door and question witnesses on every single case you know what happens to the cases where nobody is talking there's no evidence what happens to the cases where because of the victims past you know they may have found drug paraphernalia on them at the scene or they was out here doing whatever that the killer you know or it's not really being investigated because everybody is thinking the quote you know quote unquote the killer had it coming or whatever Um, What happened to these type of homicide cases? Did the killer just simply just get away with murder? It just seems like literally nothing is done with these type of forgotten homicides because, not because nobody cares, but basically because the public forgot all about it. You know, we are so, it's almost like we have become immune to murder in the state. Every single day, there's a case about Somebody got killed every constant 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 at least where I live at at least where the news that I'm exposed to You know, but on this podcast Although I do talk about a lot of cases where they you know, they did receive a lot of attention They did receive a lot of notoriety On the flip side a focus is also on homicide cases. that did not receive the attention that they deserved and with that being said this episode's unsolved homicide is the shooting murder of 14 year old sterling emmanuel settle when a child is killed a child is especially hard it's torture torture really i'm talking about when, when it goes unsolved somebody has got to know something when a child is killed and I'm not buying that they don't know nothing in this case. 14-year-old Sterling Emmanuel Settle was a ninth grader at Oxon Hill High School, and he was last seen near his home in Oxen Hill Monday, October the 9th, 1995. Sterling had went missing after that, before his body was even found. Four days later, around 4 p.m. on October the 13th, 1995, on a logging road near Covington Road in Brandywine, the 14 year old had been shot several times in his upper body. Who would shoot a 14 year old kid? I mean, and this happened in 1995. This, my father was killed in 1995. I have a, you know, I have a, a, what you call it? A a my antenna zooms in for the year of nineteen ninety five, and for this case to be unsolved for this long, I mean, come on, people! Seriously, who would kill a fourteen year old? If you have any information at all, any information at all, no matter how mundane and small it may seem, please call Charles County Crime Solvers at one eight six six. 411 tips. You can also text Charles and your tip to Crimes, which is C R I M E S, or on your numeric page or your cell phone is 274637 and provide whatever tip that you need that you can provide. Once again, those numbers are Charles County Crime Solvers at 1 411. T-I-P-S. You can text Charles and your tip to Crimes, which is 274637 or CRIMES. There is a reward of up to $5,000 available for any information for this unsolved homicide that can lead to an arrest or conviction of whoever is responsible for killing of shooting a 14-year-old. You can remain anonymous, people, when you provide your tip. Thank you for tuning in this week. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast for updates on future spine-tingling, hair-raising, eye-popping episodes. For paid subscribers, be sure to check out the real, the raw, the uncensored version of why I do what I do how and why i got into true crime the true crime books and why i decided to start a podcast a lot of people think i just woke up one day and then boom out of nowhere here is a podcast like a lot of people do but nope that's not true there's a lot of behind the scenes (laughs) a real therapeutic message to the world this whole world of true crime trust me i promise you now just click on the past episode entitled why i do what i do and you'll understand more about why i'm so into true crime i also want to let my listeners know that for season one which was the um the child murder season six of those episodes have been selected for film production meaning Production has officially begun on the video or the documentary production version of those episodes I mean editing and everything. I'm so excited because this is like a literal dream for me Producing my very first true crime documentary. It's gonna be uncut. It's gonna be uncensored It's not gonna be that watered-down stuff that you might see like on. A TV one <laughs> or a BET or nothing like that. Nope, this is going to be the real truth of what happened. Like, you know, it comes with disclaimers and everything. It's going to be that raw. And the very first documentary is—it's basically the very first documentary that's going to be produced by Savage Life Productions, and it's based off of the very first episode that was featured on this podcast. And if you don't remember what the very first episode that was featured on this podcast, maybe you should go back and check the first episode. So tune in because the video version will be coming to you soon later this year. And I don't mean just me, you know, the video version of me speaking in front of a microphone. Basically, it's the story version of um, the first episode of Season 1. And while you're at it, check out the new website. Maryland's most notorious murders.com and Merlin is spelled MDS and there's MDS most notorious murders with an S dot com where you can access episodes one through six you can also find links to all of the books that are related to this podcast entitled Maryland's most notorious murders 1990 through 2008 you can find links to Maryland's unsolved homicides volume one you can also find links to my local bestsellers which were uh junkie a true baltimore story um until i get caught the true story of a serial rapist in baltimore and child of baltimore i also have another book entitled dope and a pill you can also check me out on the latest season of payback for tv1 uh which airs on tv1 uh, i think it's uh 8 pm you can also check me out on um the oxygen network for uh where i post where i uh for black widow killers i'm sorry black widow murders where i profiled maryland's uh female serial killer josephine gray and if you really feel like doing some digging and find out who i really am you can catch me on TV ones justice by any means on uh, T V ones fatal attraction where i profiled the north carolina killer Child killer Peter Moses or you can find me hosting uh, killer kids for the element network where I profiled uh, The teen killers Jason DeLong and Sarah Citroni Once the season one documentary videos are available. You will be also um, able to find the links to the videos here at Maryland's most notorious murders so All of the information that you would need, how to access the videos, links to the books, the documentaries, everything will be found at com. Please be sure to tune in next week where another gruesome, another high-profile homicide occurring in Maryland will be profiled, it will be examined, and it will be discussed on Maryland's Most Notorious Murders. This has been a Savage Life production.